Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. John chapter 4, we continue our journey through the Gospel of John. This is our third uh, encounter with John chapter 4. Our text today is going to be verses 43 through 54. We, we read 43 through 45 last week with our text, but I thought it would be fitting for us to back up and catch those with the context of what we're about to talk about uh, this morning. So hopefully you made your way over to John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. And the Bible says, After the two days he departed from Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. They too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judah to Galilee. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and again, we thank you for the privilege and honor it is that we have to be able to come every week to worship you. Lord, we thank you that we're able to come with our brothers and sisters and we're, we're able to share with each other the rejoicings that we've had during the week and the difficulties that we've faced during the week and that we can weep with one another and rejoice with one another. And more importantly, Lord, we can come before your throne room and we can make those requests and petitions known to you and we know that you are able to do what it is that we ask you to do, Father God. And Lord, this morning we're coming before you and we of one mind are asking you to open our ears that we may hear, to cause our minds to be able to understand and comprehend the truth of your word, to use your word to sanctify us and to conform us into the image of Christ. And Lord, for those who are lost today, that you would prick hearts and that you would bring them the faith in Christ. And for those of us who are saved today, that you would challenge us and convict us in our walk with you, that we would be more faithful to you. And as always, Lord, we ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been walking with us on this journey, 
we have just left Samaria, right? Jesus had been in Jerusalem, uh, and then he decided that he had to come back to Galilee, but he must go through Samaria to get there. And we've talked about this, that that was not the way that Jews would have gone back to the Galilean region. They would have avoided Samaria. They would have went around Samaria. But we know that Jesus had a divine appointment with a woman at a well. And there is this contrast that Jesus is showing to us in this dialogue with this woman. You remember, he had just performed uh, you know, signs and wonders in Jerusalem. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us everything that he did. He, he drove out the money changers in the, in the temple. And John tells us that he did many other things that he didn't necessarily record in this book. But he had done many signs and wonders. And we know that the disciples, just prior to that, they were in, in Cana at the wedding, the very first miracle that Jesus done. And they saw him turn the water into wine, and they believed, right? Well, when we come to Samaria, there are no miracles. I mean, Jesus tells the woman everything that she's ever done in her life. But there was no miraculous sign. He didn't turn water into wine or you know, heal somebody that was blind or raise somebody from the dead. He just spoke to the woman and told her the truth of who he was. And the woman goes back and she believes and she tells the city. And the, and the people in the city believe because of the woman's testimony. And then we read later on, they hear Jesus himself. And they tell the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We've heard the word and we believe that this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. And there was no miracle there. And then we come to Galilee again to Cana. And Jesus is going to make this contrast again. Now, there are people looking for signs, but it's not in the signs that we find our faith. It's in the person of Christ that we find our faith. And that's really what this text is all about, to help us understand that our, sign, our, our faith in Christ can't be based on these miracles that he's doing. They've got to be based on who he is. And because of who he is, he is able to do the things that he's done. And isn't that John's purpose for us anyway? Didn't he tell us that already? When, he, when we were in chapter 20, you remember we started out there. He says, hey, many things Jesus said and did, they're not recorded in this work. But what is recorded, these things have been written that you might believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that in believing in him, you might have eternal life. And that's John's purpose, and that's why he writes these stories and, and tells us these narratives and shows us the things that Jesus said and did. And now we encounter this man. So the first thing I want to do is kind of walk through this text, and there are a few interesting things that we need to, we need to talk about and point out in the text. And then we're going to end with about seven different lessons I think we can learn uh, from, from this text. So just go back with me to verse 43 as we begin to walk through this text for just a moment and highlight some things that we need to we need to maybe iron out okay or at least understand so first he stayed with them two days there in in uh, samaria and after those two days he departed there in verse 43 and then john puts in this in, in, in this parenthetical statement it says he left and departed for galilee and then he says for he gives us a reason he says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Well, what does John mean by that? Because what was Jesus' hometown? Well, it wasn't Galilee. It wasn't Cana. 
His own hometown was Nazareth, right? That's, that's where he ultimately lived and grew up. And so when people see this, they're wondering, what is it that John is saying in this passage? Because Jesus doesn't go to, Gal- to, K- to Nazareth. He goes to Galilee. And it's almost saying that he has to go to Galilee because of this particular reason. Well, there are several ways that people look at this thing. One of them would be that he doesn't go to Nazareth, which is in the region of Galilee. He goes to Galilee rather than Nazareth because in your own hometown you don't have any honor as a prophet. But they're not, they're not that far away, right? And we made the argument when we were at the wedding in Cana that Jesus and his family probably knew the people who were getting married because they were within walking distance of one another, right? Now, it may take you a day to get there, but they're within walking distance of one another. And so they knew the people that were there. They knew people in Galilee. So you would think that even those people in Galilee, hey, this is the one that grew up in Nazareth, right? That they wouldn't give him that same honor that he didn't get in Nazareth. But... Another way to look at this, people think about it in a broad spectrum term. And John's kind of already painted this picture for us a little bit. You remember in John chapter 1 when John told us that Jesus came to his own. Well, who were his own? Well, they're the Jews, right? He came to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people did not receive him. So in some broad sense, Jesus didn't gain respect from among the Jews as a whole. Now, I know that the disciples were Jewish and the early church was predominantly Jewish, but there were still a great number of Jews who didn't receive Jesus as as the Messiah, as the Son of God. So in some broad sense, he didn't receive honor from among his own people. But I think personally that this is John saying he went to Galilee rather than Nazareth because in Nazareth, it was his hometown and he wouldn't gain honor. He didn't have any honor in Nazareth, right? So anyway, that's just an interesting thing we need to talk about. But why is it that Jesus goes here? Again, there's a divine appointment in there. There's somebody who is going to meet Jesus at this place, and they're going to have a saving encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he done was about bringing forth the gospel and changing the lives of people. So he goes on in verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, and the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Well, why, why were they welcoming him, you think? Because they believed he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, like the Samaritans? Mm-mm. They were welcoming him because they had seen all the things that he had done. They had seen the miracles, and they had a lust for the miracles that Jesus was doing, right? Well, wouldn't you be that way? I would be that way. When the circus comes to town, what do we do? We go to the circus, don't we? Because we want to see these wonderful things that we see at a circus that we don't normally see. They'd never seen anything like this man before in their midst and the things that he could do. And there was this curiosity around Jesus, and they wanted to see more of these things. You remember, Jesus has already told us, when these people saw what Jesus was doing, the Bible says that they believed. But you remember that phrase that the Bible told us earlier in John? It says, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Why? Because he knew what was in their heart. Same people. They were down there. Now they're up here in Galilee because that's where they live. And they have this same false faith in Christ. It's not that they believe in him because he's the son of the living God. 
It's not that they believe in him because he is the savior of the world. It's that they are interested in the phenomenon that is Jesus the Christ who's coming in and doing all these miracles and they want to see more. And Jesus, I think, will nail that down in verse 48 for us. Listen, he goes on to say, John goes on to say in verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water to wine and at Capernaum, now Capernaum's about 15 miles away, some people say 20, 15 to 20 miles away from where Jesus was, okay? There was an official, now depending on your translation, it, it may have a royal official or something like that. That's, that is the idea behind this word. This Greek word comes from the, 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 the word group where we get king. So this gentleman was in some way in service to King Herod. In some way, he was in, in service to the king's court or the king's entourage. So he was, a, he was a, an important person, probably a wealthy person. And there's debate whether he was Jew or Gentile. I believe he was ultimately a Jewish man who was in the service of King uh, Herod. So this was an official man who had authority, and he had a son that was ill. And this illness was so devastating that this gentleman, when he heard, look at verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come to Judah in Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. He took the time to walk the 15 to 20 miles to Jesus. So he had to start the day before and walk and meet Jesus because he heard he was coming. And his son was so deathly ill, he knew that Jesus was a miracle worker. And he knew his only hope was that this miracle worker would do something to save his son. Can you imagine? Put yourself. This, this guy's no longer thinking, hey, of his status. This is a dad who is in desperate desire for his son to be healed. That's one of the most tragic things in our world today, isn't it? That children die before their parents, right? That, that's not, we, we, we look at that and say it's not natural. It's not, not right. How many of us, when our children get sick or ill or, or something goes on wrong with them, it grieves us to our core. That's, that's where this man was because his son was on the verge of death. And so he journeys to meet Jesus, this miracle worker that he's heard about because his son was at the point of death. And so Jesus, uh, when, when, whenever he comes to Jesus, verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come to Galilee, he went down and asked him to come and, and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So his idea was, I've got to bring this guy to where my son is. I've got to have Jesus come, lay his hands on him, touch this boy so that this boy will be healed. That was his intention, to come and get Jesus, and he and Jesus travel back the 15 to 20 miles to his house and see his son get healed. And then listen to what Jesus says to this guy. We, we, we might not take this the right way, right? We, we expect Jesus to say something completely different, don't we? we? We expect Jesus, in the way that we portray him in the world today, to do something totally different than what he's about to do to this man. Listen to what he says to this man. He says, unless you... Now, Jesus says to him, the man, 
Auton in the Greek, this man, he's addressing this royal person, but there's a twist. And we don't catch it in the English translation because we would presume that he's saying to this man, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Well, he is addressing this man, but the interesting thing, the two verbs that are in this sentence about seeing and believing are in the plural. The second person plural. So for us, it would be unless y'all don't see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. So as he's addressing this man, he's also addressing the crowd. Why? Because these were the same people that were with him when they saw these signs and wonders. And he knows that's what's in their heart. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now that's an interesting way for Jesus to address this young man or this man. He comes, his son is at the point of death. He is imploring Jesus to come before the boy dies. Because he believes that's his only hope, that Jesus would come and touch this boy. And then Jesus says to him and the crowd, unless y'all don't see signs and wonders, y'all won't believe. And then the, the man doubles down. He says, sir, come, look at verse 49, before my child dies. As if to say, I don't have time for this dialogue. My boy's about to die. I need you to do something, and you need to come with me to do it because time's running out. Interesting thing is he didn't really realize who he was talking to, did he? So what does Jesus do then? Jesus does then what we would expect him to do. We, he does then what we presume that he would have done to start with. He says, Go. Your son will live. Now, what was the man's intent? The man's intent was to get Jesus to bring him back with him so that he could physically be there and touch the boy. And what does Jesus do? Jesus tests his faith. Why? But that's the whole reason for the declaration that if y'all don't see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Jesus, in a way, says to this man, okay, you think I can do what you, you ask, you're asking me to do? then you trust my word. You go. I'm staying. You go. Your son will live. And the man believed. And what the word says? And, and the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. How about you today? Do you believe the words that Jesus has spoken to you? You said Jesus hadn't spoken to me. Well, I beg to differ. He's given you a big old book. And he's spoken to the world with this book. He's given us this creation around us. And the psalmist says that his voice goes out throughout the world in creation. God has spoken. Do you believe the word that God has spoken? Said in Sunday school, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. Do you have that kind of faith today? And we talked about it a little bit in the Sunday school, I think, but we'll talk about it again now. The world still looks for signs and wonders, don't they? Isn't that what they ask of God? If you're real, why don't you just do this, right? If you're real, why don't, why don't you just reveal yourself to me? Why don't, why don't you just part the sky and shout out? But you know what? God has done all of those things. Every one of those things. 
And the most miraculous thing that he did was be raised from the dead. You remember what Jesus said to the rich man in Lazarus? When the rich man was in, in Hades and he was suffering in torment and he says, hey, send Lazarus back to my five brothers so that they will believe and not have to come and suffer this torment that I'm suffering. And Abraham says to this rich man, says they have Moses and the, and the prophet or the law and the prophets. And the man says, no, 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 you don't understand. If you would just send someone back from the dead, if you would give them a sign or a wonder, then they will believe. And Abraham says to him, no, you don't understand. If they don't believe Moses, they don't believe the prophets, they don't believe what God's already said, then they're not going to believe someone coming back from the dead. Isn't that, the, isn't that the reality of today? Because what Jesus did is exactly what that rich man was asking uh, Father Abraham to do. Jesus came back from the dead. And he has made himself known in an obvious way to the world. And yet the majority of the world still does not believe the word of Christ. But it even gets better. Let, let's continue to read. This, this man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And he went away. As he was going, his servant came to him and told him his son was getting better, recovering. And so he asked him, what hour did this happen? And he said it was the seventh hour, about one o'clock. And the man knew that that was the exact time that Jesus said to him, your son will live. Jesus, at least 20 miles away, 15, 20 miles away, says, with no flamboyance, no Benny Hinn theatrics, he just says, your son will live. And the boy began to live. Isn't that powerful? Doesn't it speak to who he is? You remember what John said in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. And he says that everything that was created, what that was created, was created through him, by him, and for him. And not one thing that has been created was created without him. The power of life is in the word of Christ. He spoke and the boy lived. And that same power for life is in the word of Christ today. He has spoken. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way for you to have eternal life than through him. Do you believe the word that he has spoken? And it even gets better than that. Listen, once the man rejoiced in that, he goes home and in verse 53, now he's no longer an official, right? The narrative has changed. He's still that ruler, but the narrative has changed. He's not identified as the official. He's the father. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, reiterating the fact that he believed and trusted Christ's word. And not only that, all his household. How powerful is the faith of of a father. When the father of the house comes to faith in Christ, statistically, 
the majority of the house will come to faith in Christ. You understand that? Men, that's how important it is for you to have faith in Jesus Christ. That's how important it is for you to be the, the spiritual leader of your house. You impact everybody under your roof. The words of Christ changed these people. Now, what are some lessons that we can learn from this? When I was studying for this, I came across J.C. Ryle's commentary. He, he lists five lessons. I, I kind of take those five and I added a few to and kind of augmented the way they were, they were written. But I thought that they were very interesting and compelling lessons that we ought to learn. The first thing I think we see in this passage, other than Jesus is the Christ, that's where we're going to end, is that affliction doesn't care about your social status. You understand that? Doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, affliction is coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Affliction, in some ways, is coming to every human being. Right? I don't know any humans that don't go through tough times. Do you? We can't escape it. It's going to happen. How do we deal with it? You know, that's, that's the real question. How do we deal with it when it does happen? The second thing I think we learn from this passage is that affliction doesn't care how old you are. Right? Sickness, disease, death. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't care. I have done funerals for infants who died in the womb. I've done funerals for teenagers who died in horrific accidents. And I've done funerals for everybody in between. Affliction, sickness, death, disease comes to all of humanity. Young and old. How can we deal with it? How can we live through it? I'm going to tell you that in just a moment. Another thing I thought about is ultimately affliction is because of the fall. It's because of sin, right? It's because of what happened in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord. They were cursed and this world was cursed. And sin brought death, right? That's the wages of sin. And it brought disease. And all other affliction and calamity that we have is because of sin. So how much of a hatred should we have for sin? Because of what it's done to the human race. And how much of a hatred should we have of our own sin because of the potential it has to send us to everlasting damnation apart from Jesus Christ? Sin is the problem. And I am a sinner, so I am part of the problem. And it takes God's redeeming work in me to change me from sinner to saint. Right? Then something else I thought about. Sometimes affliction is God's means to bring glory to his name. Now, we don't like to hear that part, right? Sometimes affliction is God's means to bring glory to his name. We're, we're going to get to John chapter 9 before long. And in John chapter 9, we're going to meet a gentleman who was born blind. And Jesus heals this gentleman of his blindness. 
But the religious leaders asked this intriguing question of this man or about this man. They say, who sinned that this man was born blind? Him or his parents? Now, that's an interesting question. We'll talk about that when we get there, okay? But the answer that Jesus gave is what I want to point out to you today. Jesus says, neither. Neither he nor his parents. He says, this gentleman was born this way that God's name would be glorified. That's my paraphrase. That it would bring glory and honor to God. And how did it bring glory and honor to God? When Jesus healed the man. And it caused people to praise and rejoice God. Sometimes God uses affliction in our life to bring glory and honor to his holy name. We don't like to hear that. Another thing, sometimes affliction is used by God to accomplish his will. I know that, that's almost redundant, right, of, to what I just said. But I thought about Joseph. You remember Israel's son, Joseph? Coat of many colors, Joseph. Dreams, you know, of bushels bowing down to him, Joseph. Star, sun, and moon bowing down to him, Joseph. Whom his brothers hated and despised, were envious of, and plotted to kill. And I think it was Reuben who had a little bit of sense among the group and says, hey, let's, let's not kill him. There's a pit over here. Let's throw him in this pit and we'll just make his dad think he's dead. And then he ended up in the pit and then there happened to be these slave traders that come by and they sold him into slavery. And he ended up down in Egypt and Potiphar uh, bought him and he became chief of Potiphar's house, even as a slave. And then Potiphar's wife accused him unjustly and he ended up in prison. And he stayed in prison for quite a long time. The baker and the butler left and eventually, they finally, one of them finally remembered, hey, there's this dude in prison that was able to interpret this dream that I had when the king, when the Pharaoh had a dream he couldn't, his wise men couldn't interpret. And the story is Joseph ended up in the palace. But here's the pertinent part of the story to me, to what I'm talking about. When Joseph's brothers came back because famine was in the land, and they were saved. Israel was saved. The world was saved, but it was God's plan to save Israel. Why? Well, because he made a promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, although the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. And that seed of the woman was pointing to Jesus Christ, the Messiah that was going to come. And it's through Israel that that Messiah was going to come. So God chose to save Israel from this famine by sending Joseph to Egypt in affliction. And Joseph told his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. Sometimes God uses affliction to accomplish his will. Sometimes God uses affliction to accomplish the greater good. And I thought about Jesus. What more fitting illustration of God accomplishing the greater good through affliction. Jesus Christ, the only innocent human being to walk planet earth, fulfilled the law. He was tempted in every way that you and I were tempted, yet he was without sin. 
The only perfect man was treated as though he were a criminal, was beaten and nailed to a cross among thieves. He bore our shame and our guilt on a cross of Calvary. He was in essence murdered so that we could be redeemed. Sometimes God uses affliction to accomplish the greater good. Sometimes God removes that affliction in our life, right? Hey, this official, he goes to Jesus. He says to him, my son is on the verge of death. I need you to help. And Jesus says, your son will live. And his son lived. And we see it over and over again in Jesus' ministry on earth, right? He heals blind people. He heals lepers. He, he, he causes people who are lame to walk. He even raises Lazarus from the dead. Sometimes he removes affliction. But sometimes God allows us to remain in our affliction. And I thought about Paul. You remember Paul, 2 Corinthians? In 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking about the visions that he had in, in chapter 12. And he says, because of these visions, that there was this potential for him to be puffed up or proud. And he says, God sent a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, to keep him from being conceited. And he goes to God three times and says, will you please remove this thorn in my flesh? You know what the Lord's answer to him was? My grace is sufficient. In other words, no, I'm not removing it. But the grace I give you is sufficient for you to endure it. Now that's easy preaching and hard living right there, isn't it? Because we, we want to see what happened with this official. When we come to Jesus in our affliction, we want him to remove it, right? Take away whatever it is. If I'm blind, make me see. If I'm lame, make me walk, right? But what if Jesus says, no, but my grace is sufficient. Because Jesus didn't heal everybody that was in every city, did he? There were times when he says, hey, we're moving on. Now that's, that's a test of faith right there, isn't it, right? When he says, my grace is sufficient, even in the midst of your affliction. But what does James tell us about affliction? He tells us about Trials and tribulations. They're, they're like the refiner's fire that purifies our faith. And James even goes further. He tells us to count it all joy whenever we face these afflictions. In particular, in the name of Christ. But here's what you and I need to understand. Affliction is going to come. There, there's no if and and, if, ands, or buts about it. You're going to suffer in this life some way. I don't care what Joel Osteen says or Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, or any of those names you want to put in there, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes. I don't care what all, any of those people say. It's not always cake and ice cream. And you're not necessarily going to have all the riches of the world. 
I don't care how long, how many times you claim them, how many times you name them. Your sufficiency must be in Christ and Christ alone. If our, if God's love and concern for us were based upon our monetary blessings that we have in this life, our lack of pain, our lack of suffering, then God the Father must have hated his disciples. You understand? You hear what I'm saying? God loves you even in the midst of trial. And sometimes that trial is there for a reason. And God's grace is sufficient for you to endure. And it is a benefit when God removes it from us. But what if we think about it this way? I don't like to go through pain and suffering, right? None of us do. But what if on the other side, in my pain and suffering, in my affliction, that someone else came to faith in Christ because they saw how I lived in the midst of affliction? Well, we ought to praise God for that, right? I got y'all all bummed out, don't I? Right now. Here's what affliction ought to do. It ought to drive us to Christ. Cause this father to say, I'm going to walk 20 miles to go see this man. It'll drive us to Christ. Knowing that he is the only one that can truly help, right? He is the only one that can truly remove. And it ought to drive us to him. And it'll drive us closer to him. And we ought to go to Jesus. But we also need to understand like this man understood, this official understood. We have to walk by faith and not by sight. That's really what Jesus was testing in this man. Do you have to see a miracle before you're going to believe? Or will you trust my word and walk by faith? Isn't that what God did with Abraham? You go where I'm going to tell you. Leave everything you know. You go where I'm going to tell you. And you walk by faith, not by sight. Now, that doesn't mean we have blind faith, right? But it means we trust God. Even if it seems difficult or uncomfortable, we trust God in the journey. Christ's word is just as good as his presence. That's the next lesson. Christ's word is just as good as his presence. He didn't have to be there to heal that boy, did he? All he had to do was speak it, and it happened. Do we trust the word of Christ? Is it sufficient for you? It ought to be. Last thing, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's really the point of this story, isn't it? That's the point of what John is driving at in this gospel. That's what John was trying to get this gentleman to understand. That's why John wrote to us this sign that took place. It's so like this man and his household that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that in believing in his name, we might have life and have it eternal. So the question is, do you believe in Jesus? And, and I'm not talking about demon faith, right? In, in just one more chapter, we're going we're to see Jesus feeding some folks, doing wonders. 
And Jesus is ultimately going to go from a, in our vernacular, a mega church to a mini church. Because he's going to look at the crowd of those people who come back and find him after their bellies were full. And he's going to say, the only reason you're coming after me is because you want more bread. Right? And when Jesus gets done with them, the crowd leaves. And he looks at his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? We've got to come to Christ because of who he is and what he's done. He is God in the flesh. The word who took on flesh and walked among us, who went to a cross and died in our place and suffered our wrath, bore our shame and our guilt, and made a way for us to be reconciled to God if we will bow our knee to him as Lord and Savior of our life. And Sometimes when I say that, I think we don't understand what that means. When we bow our knee to him, we surrender every aspect of our life to him. There's nothing in my life and your life that can be our own anymore. It is all his. And we say to him, here I am, Lord. Use whatever I have to bring glory and honor to your name in whatever way you see fit. Now, that's a scary thing for Americans to do, isn't it? Right? Surrender all. That's what God's asking of you today. Will you surrender to him? Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, if there's a lost person here today, I hope that you use the truth of your word to draw them to faith in Christ and that they will make that known uh, today. For those of us who are believers, Lord, I trust that you have encouraged us even in the midst of our affliction, that your grace is sufficient, that you, you are aware and you are with us and we're not alone. But you've also challenged us, Lord, to continue to be faithful to you, to trust your word, to to follow after you, even in the midst of that affliction, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that in these next few moments that you'd have your will and your way with us and that we we would ultimately be faithful to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.